Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing that which is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless, for the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has sheep, if it falls into the pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it? And lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the, but the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you and we come to you again because there is no one else to whom we can turn, God. You have the words, the words of life, Father. So we ask that you would convict us of our sins. That even as we read this text, that we would not be so arrogant as to, to think that we are the ones who would have it right, God. But that we would throw ourselves at your feet, God. That you would make yourself known and that you would exalt yourself far above us. Amen. I hate... I hate parking tickets. One of my great nemesis in life. I've been known in my checkered past of uh, driving to accumulate more than I care to publicly admit. But, uh, the, okay, so you're driving along and you, you find the spot in front of the building and you, you don't want to park in the ramp because that's several blocks away. So you find the spot right in front of the building you're going to be in, you're going to be out, right? So you go there. Well, you don't have any cash. No one carries cash anymore. And one of the byproducts of not having cash is that you don't have coins in the car anymore. But you do have some. 
Because after the last parking ticket you got, you promised yourself that was going to be the last one. So you got some coins, you put them in the car, you open up the ashtray and find out that the coins that you put in there several weeks earlier have been pillaged by your children in the back and they've become pirate treasure and they're buried somewhere in the yard. So without coins or anything like that, you go, okay, well, I found a nickel. That'll buy me like three minutes, right? So you try to get out there, get in, get out as quick as you can with all the kids, which just never happens. And you get out and some nice, kind officer has left you with a little thank you note in an envelope. And you have another ticket. And there's no way around it. I found one. Well, okay, so there's the obvious one, which is being more organized than I am and actually paying the meter. But there's only one real way for me around this, and that is diplomatic immunity. So you, as a diplomat, it doesn't matter if you're guilty or innocent. That doesn't matter. Because of who you are, you're innocent. So the New York City, city of New York, the UN is there. So in the city of New York, they have tens of millions of dollars, tens of millions of dollars. I've paid all mine, by the way. They Tens of millions of dollars in unpaid parking tickets because of diplomatic immunity. It's a beautiful thing. It really is. So we see in our text here today, there's going to be some squabbling about the law, this way or that, that way or this. But we're going to see in our text, here's the main idea, is that in the face of these accusations that Jesus Christ proves himself to be God. He proves himself to be God in the midst of these accusations. Therefore, verses 1 through 8, we have freedom, and freedom in Christ. And the outflow of that is the next verses, 9 through 14, when we, are, we see that we are free. But what are we free to do, friends? We're free to serve. That's what we're free to do. So the main idea that we're going to be driving home is that in the face of these accusations, squabbling about the, the, the Sabbath, in the face of these accusations, Jesus Christ proves himself to be God. Proves himself to be God. Therefore, verses 1 through 8, you, you are free, but you are free in Christ, and in Christ alone. The outflow of that is that you are free not to do what you want, but rather you are free to serve, as we see in verses 9 through 14. Just to recap where we've been and where we're going, Jesus Christ begins his ministry. And the first words out of his mouth are, repent, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he begins to teach them and then show them, teach them and show them what it means that the kingdom of heaven has come down. So you see him in the garden, you see God and man dwelling in the same place. Now you see in the ministry of Christ, this kingdom of God, God is now going to dwell with man. And what does this look like? Ha! Ah. Let me, let me teach you. He gathers his, his ragtag group of followers, not the sons of the high-ranking disciples of Pharisees. No, he gets fishermen and tax collectors and zealots who want to overthrow the government. And they follow him, and he begins to teach them. On the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee, up in the mountain, you have chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount. What does it look like? What does this life of discipleship look like in the, in, under the shadow that the kingdom of heaven is at hand? How is it different than... Than before. What is new? Ah, let me show you. Who's blessed? 
Oh, well, that's actually the, the poor in spirit are blessed. Those who mourn are blessed. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those are the ones who are blessed. So it's, it's everything's being turned upside down now that the kingdom of heaven is here. So he teaches him in the Sermon on the Mount, then he comes down. And then chapters 8 and 9, we see this, well, he shows him. What does it look like? Well, it looks like lepers being healed and, and demoniacs being cleansed and, and Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead. And this lady who he encounters on the way to Jairus' daughter this, has this hemorrhaging for 12 years. Well, she's healed. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like for God to again dwell with man, for the kingdom of heaven to come down to earth. And then he begins to teach them again. Teach them and show them. Teach them and show them. He's teaching them again in chapter 10. What does this life look like? This life of discipleship, what does it look like? Well, it costs you everything. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me, Jesus says, is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It costs you everything. And then last week, Sean was preaching on these cities that would not repent. Of course, and Bethsaida and they don't repent and there will be judgment for those who don't repent but for those who do and for those who come to Christ they find that his yoke is easy and his burden is light and in the midst of all of this you have these established religious rulers the Pharisees, the Sadducees they're coming to Christ, and they've been kind of on the fringes before. They've asked a couple questions, but now you see that they begin to confront him, and they can begin to confront him on a, a central issue in Jewish culture, which is the Sabbath. So with that in mind, let's go back to our text and read verses 1 through 8. Let's go back and read verses 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are not doing what is lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who are with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple Profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So here is Christ and his disciples and their they're going through the grain fields and they would pick up some wheat and they would pull it off and they would kind of rub it together and blow the chaff away and, and then eat it. And perhaps you think, well, this is, this is a trifling thing. Why, why are the Pharisees getting upset about this? It's not really a big deal, is it? And, and I'm not being an apologist for the Pharisees by, by any means because their legalism leads people Right to, the, right to hell, just as legalism today leads people right to hell. But why were they so adamant on keeping the law? Think of all the hardships. Patrick was teaching 
this morning going through the wonderful survey of the Old Testament. Why were there so many hardships for the Jewish people? Because they did not love God and obey his law. You don't love God and obey his law. Yes, well, then you go into exile. You don't love God and obey his law. Yes, the northern ten tribes, they're gone. And it doesn't take long before the loving God part is gone and you're just focused upon obeying the law. For example, so you God says, this, this pulpit here is holy, don't touch it. And so out of reverence and fear for God, you just don't touch the pulpit. It doesn't matter about proximity, it's just having right hearts and understanding the glory and the holiness of God in our sin. Okay. But when the loving part about God is being washed away and all you care about is keeping the law, well, then it becomes a matter of proximity. So then it's no longer a don't touch the pulpit because God is holy and you are not holy, which makes you go, how can I become holy? No, no, no. Well, then they just erect these false laws of, well, don't come within an arm's length or have more rabbinic teachings of, well, don't even come on the stage. But then it becomes a matter of proximity to something that is wooden rather than the holiness and the fear of God. Same thing on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is, is quite, quite simple. We read about it a little bit in Genesis 2, and you can read it in uh, Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5. The basic underlying thing is that God loves himself more than anything else, and he wants you to be as he is. So God works days 1 through 6. He takes the seventh day off under the Mosaic Covenant, what do you do? You work days one through six, and you take the seventh day off because you want to be as God is. Okay. But now you have the rabbinic teachings coming in. And what do they have? Hundreds and hundreds. We read through some of them this week, and they're, they're quite comical, actually. They have hundreds and hundreds of pages on from the Talmud and Midrash, of, of what can be done and not done. And they're just wearisome details. There's nothing, nothing spiritual prof, spiritually profitable in whatsoever. You can't cook, so what can you not do? You can't pour warm water in cold, but you could pour cold water in warm. You can't throw, pick something up, throw it in the air, and catch it in the same hand. But you could, perhaps, maybe, throw it up and catch it in a different hand. That's debatable. But you certainly could throw a piece of food in the air and catch it in your mouth because once you eat it, it's gone. And so then you're guiltless. Rain falling down is not sinning if it rains on the Sabbath. Um, but if the rain hits the side of a building and works its way down the side of the building, well, then the rain, those drops of rain, are actually sinning because they're working on the Sabbath. Nothing spiritually profitable. Moms, you want to pick up your child? Well, you can't work. On the Sabbath. But we'll make a provision for you to be able to pick up your child because we don't want children just laid out across the floors one day a week. So you can. You can pick up your child and nurture them and love them. However, if said child that you want to pick up, if Everest is there and he has a rock in his hand and you want to pick up that child, well, if you pick him up and he's holding a rock, indirectly you're lifting a rock, which is then work, and so now you are sinning. You, you get it? No. Right? <laughs> So it's with this mindset that the Pharisees see Jesus Christ, a rabbi who's teaching radically 
different things than they've ever heard and that they've ever taught. And they see him and his disciples walking through the grain fields, picking heads of wheat, rubbing them together. Oh, they're, they're harvesting. They're not only they're harvesting, they're, they're reaping and they're threshing. And now they're, well, yeah. So you see this and Christ responds in a, in a beautiful way. And these disciples, perhaps, rabbinic law, of course they broke that. Did they break the Sabbath? Well, you can take it one way or the other. Did they work? I don't know. It's a heart man. They did break the rabbinic customs, but you'll see that they would have only been guilty had the disciples not been with Christ. So Jesus gives him two examples, one from David and then the other one from the temple. With, regarding David, he says, he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat nor for those who are with him, but only for the priest. So here is David in uh, 1 Samuel 21, and he's on the run from Saul. He's been anointed king by Samuel. He's on the run from Saul, and he's in service to the Lord. He is doing what God would have him to do. And because of this, he was able to eat what would have normally been forbidden. And he was guiltless. So to here is Christ. He's a banished king and they both are have their ragtag group of men following them along, and they're both going through the countryside as well. And David is being pursued by the ungodly established rulers, which is Saul. So to his Christ, being followed by the ungodly established rulers of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And here's what Jesus Christ is telling them. David was guiltless because he was in service to God. My disciples are guiltless because they're in service to me. Therefore, do you see what he's implying here? I'm God. It's okay. I am God. And then to make this a little bit more clear, Jesus, he talks about the priests in the temples, and the priests are certainly not above the law and they're Absolutely not above these uh, laws regarding the Sabbath. But the priests are guiltless because they're in service to the temple. The disciples are guiltless because they're in service to me. And he reads their thoughts and he knows it. They're thinking, oh, no, no. Are you saying that you're the temple? We just heard you say that you're God, but no one profanes the temple. Are you saying that you're the temple? Why do you think he responds? Oh, no, no. One greater than the temple is here, Christ says. And the Pharisees, they, they should have known this. So Jesus, he quotes Hosea 6, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. So the Pharisees, even in their own Talmud, they even have, they have these provisions that righteousness is greater than sacrifice. But in, in the day of Hosea, what's going on is He's northern kingdom and he's decrying them, them and the southern kingdom. You have these established religious rulers, probably pastors of the day, to be honest, saying, do this, 
keep this law. And they're making these outward sacrifices. These, they're fulfilling these religious customs. Meanwhile, their heart is stone and driving them to hell. With these cold hearts, they make their burning hot sacrifices. And with eyes no longer fixed on the glory of God and His beauty, well, then they look down on others and their pride, and they condemn them. But all of this is a moot point because the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So all of their pride and all of their accusations or nothing. So here they come to him and they, they want to just nail him on some minor point of rabbinic custom and rabbinic teaching. And here comes Jesus and he responds, oh no, 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 I'm God. I'm greater than the temple. The Son of Man, me, is Lord over the Sabbath. Jesus Christ is Lord over the Sabbath. And you are subject to the Sabbath and it's clear by the way you live. Therefore, I am Lord even over you. And you wonder why they want to stone him every chance they get. They try to nail him on some little point, and he just says, No, I'm God, fall in line. So we have this in our own Christian lives, though. Even now, so it's so easy to look at the Pharisees and decry them. So easy. But look at the burdens in your own life. What troubles you? What consumes your mind and your heart? Is it the, the essential things of exalting Christ and glorifying God, or are they the external things of not pouring warm water on cold and not lifting up your child if he has a stone in his hand? In, in our cultural narrative that we're all swimming in, there's this relentless pressure to, to look and to act, and especially now to think, to think a certain way. Don't you know that you're supposed to have a spotless house? Don't you know that your house is supposed to be rather large, actually? And if it could actually be larger than something you could actually afford, that would be the best. And the house you do move into that you can't quite afford, but that you end up buying anyways because you think you're supposed to, uh, whatever it was before, whatever it looks like is not good enough. Just go scroll through this. See all these pictures of these super moms who are able to all do all these crafty things and all these wonderful husbands who can then build it for them? Well, you should be doing that too in your own home, right? There's pressure. It's relentless. You don't even realize it, but because we're swimming in the current. I'll just say it. Homeschooling. I, I won't even go there. I'll just say it. Homeschooling. Or kids playing sports. I mean, we have kids going to ice time at 6 a.m. What do you mean you can't make it 6 a.m. ice time? What do you mean your five-year-old doesn't play an instrument? Don't you want them to be cultured? You're going to let Western civilization crumble in your own home. Well, there's the Suzuki method. There's no reason for a five-year-old to not be playing the piano or violin or any other instrument. They'll never be playing Mendelssohn if you don't start now. That's never going to happen. Wait, oh, you don't have kids. 
well, I don't, I don't really care how you feel. I'm just going to tell you. Well, you're, you're not trying hard enough. I don't know what that means, but that's the wonderful advice. You're, you're just not trying hard enough. Oh, you have one or two? Well, just keep trying, and then you'll get one of each, right? Oh, you have four? You have five? Wait a minute. You have number six on the way? Well, how old's your oldest? Wait, he's seven, actually. Wait, wait, wait. So your oldest is seven, and you have number six, who's weeks away? Well, I'm super mom. Let me tell you. I must tell you what I think of that. No, no, I don't really care. No, 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 no. no. Let me tell you what I, what I think of that. It's just there, this cultural narrative. And it's not essential things. So it's easy to look at the Pharisees and go, poor and why? You know, that, well, that sounds stupid. And then but we don't, we lose sight of our own culture and our own narrative and our own trappings of slavery. And we bury ourselves under these burdens and we're no different than the Pharisees. We construct all of these, these false edifices of godliness. Meanwhile, we're, we're, not keeping the, we're not keeping the law. We're not exalting Christ, but we're, we're keeping this false essence of godliness. And so we're on our way to hell while we look godly. Children, obey your parents. Yes. Children, obeying your parents will not save you from hell. Parents, your children obeying you will not save them from hell. It is in Him. It is in Him. It was in Christ that the disciples were free and guiltless from these false accusations. And it is in Christ that we, God's people, are free and guiltless from these false accusations. The disciples were not free because they were without guilt. Now, it was quite easy to point out where they fell and what they did wrong. But they were free because they were in Christ. So we've seen that kind of a main idea. Jesus Christ, in the face of all these accusations, Jesus Christ, he proves himself to be God. Therefore, because he is God, he's He's greater than the temple. Everyone who is, who is in Him is free. Free from all accusations. That's, that's beautiful. So what are, we, what are we free to do, actually? What does that mean? Well, let's look at these next verses, 9 through 14. He went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take a hold of it and lift it up? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how they might destroy him. So you see the, the setting here is, is changed. When you're reading narrative, just to be a good student of the text, when you're reading narrative, pay attention to the settings. Where are they at? They're in the grain fields to begin. Now they're in the synagogue. These are the author's gift to you. 
to be able to follow line, follow along what's going on. So when you're reading narrative, pay attention to the setting and what's going on here. So they moved from the grain fields of the common area where the common folk are. Now they're in the setting of a religious setting. And you see that um, in the other gospel accounts and out of this story, but Jesus is up front, so he's reading the scrolls. He's reading the scroll of Isaiah, and he's saying, this is being fulfilled before you today. So it's likely that he's up the front reading a scroll. He's becoming a popular rabbi. And you see the Pharisees kind of out on the side, just scheming against him. What they can do, what they can do. Oh, there's, there's this man. There's this man who goes nameless because his name isn't important. The fact that he has a withered hand is quite important. So this nameless man with a withered hand, what do they do? They don't, do they care about him? No. No. They want to entrap, entrap Jesus. And they, they get him in and actually a, a fairly... A pretty tough situation. So they, they bring this man with a withered hand up to Christ, who's perhaps a front reading, he's a popular rabbi at the time. And if he doesn't heal him, well, then he's a hypocrite. Because he had just said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And he said, no, 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 you can, you can harvest grain on the Sabbath. You can, you can bring it in if you're famished and you're with Christ. Okay, well, here, here's an example. Are you going to heal him? So if he doesn't heal him, well, then he's a hypocrite. If he does heal him, Maybe he's working. He takes his hand in this non-life-threatening wound. So what does he do? Neither, really. Yeah, he heals him. But he doesn't break the Sabbath because he's not using his hands. So here is God sustaining all of creation, even on the Sabbath. Sustaining all of creation. Life is coming forth by the word of God on the Sabbath. Life is coming forth out of his withered hand on the Sabbath. By what? By the word of God. So he again declares himself to be God. And he brings forth this life even on the Sabbath. And then he uses their own actions to condemn their hypocrisy. Do you catch that? They want to malign Jesus for healing a man, someone created in the image of God. They want to malign him for healing that man. But they themselves will, a lowly sheep, will pull it out of a pit. Can't, God forbid they see you lifting your child who might have a stone in their hand. But something tangibly that they could sell in the market, well, yeah, they'll lift that out of the pit on the Sabbath. And they're guiltless in doing so, actually. Why? Because it is always lawful to do good, even on the Sabbath. So you see that the spiritual meaning of the law is what guides our interpretation of the mere letters of the law. It's the spiritual meaning behind it that guides our interpretation. So you see that you are... Free, and you're free in Christ. That's what we covered earlier. But you are not free to do whatever you desire. You are free, but you are free to serve and to follow Him. You're free to give of yourself, free to follow Him to the point, as the disciples did, where they were hungry and famished, as they not going to the market fields. No, they were still walking through the grain fields. 
You are free to give of yourself, of your, of your time and your title and your treasure so that others might exalt Christ and glorify God and worship Him. And this is the, the interesting relationship between freedom and slavery. Slavery and freedom. You are free, yes. But you are only free to do what your heart desires. You're free. You're free to go into the temple and to heal the man with the withered hand. That's what you're free to do. So you find yourself. You're able to do what your heart desires. So you're still a slave. And you're still a slave to your own heart. Look at Paul. There therefore is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Because through Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then and do not, be, do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Oh, great, Paul, we're free. Wonderful, we're free, we're free in Christ. Well, how did he introduce himself? What did he think of himself? Romans 1. Paul, a slave, a slave of Christ Jesus. Is he free? Yes. Is he a slave? He certainly is. A slave and free to, to love as Christ loved. A slave and he's free to, to give his life as Christ gave his life. And that is what you are free to do, my friends. So now let's look and see the response of these Pharisees. And this should haunt you. To be honest, this should haunt you. Verse 14, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Is God hardened the heart of Pharaoh? So that even though God did these marvelous works in front of Pharaoh, Pharaoh could not acknowledge that he was God. So too with these Pharisees. They see the hand coming forth. They, Christ is teaching them the, the Old Testament in a way that they've never seen before. And they see and they understand that he is God. And here are you today being confronted with this same event, with this same text. It's as if Christ was healing the man right in front of us. And he's proving himself to be God. And when he does this, there's only two responses. Either you serve him or you stone him. There's no middle ground. You serve him or you stone him when you understand that he is declaring himself to be God. And you are not and he owns your life. And you might be free, but you are a slave. And you're a slave to him. But you love it. Because that is how he has changed your heart. So what will you do? I pray that you find your true freedom in being a slave to Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Gracious God, we, 
We thank you that we know that you bring life through your Son. And it is through Him that we are free. And it is in Him that even though we, we, are, we are guilty, but it, when we are in your Son, we are free. God, I, I pray that we would rejoice in that. And that we would not be these Pharisees, which is all of us, God. That we would not have hearts as them, God, could you change ours. That they wouldn't look at their own righteousness and how they keep the law, but God, that we could look to your Son and how He fulfilled the law. It is through Him that we have righteousness, God. I pray that for this coming week that we would rejoice in the freedom that we have in you and that we would see ourselves as slaves joyfully given to your service. Amen.